I didn't get to where I got to with great successes on the first steps. The reason why beauty is more resilient than almost any other business in the world with the exception of food is that beauty is an aspiration that's universal. Every great beauty brand comes from the source of a person, an ingredient, a place, a provenance of something that makes it unique and special. And if you don't have those things, you can be a fad or you can be a trend, but you can't be a global business. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to Inside Fashion, your weekly look into the wonderful world of fashion, luxury, and this week, beauty. We sit down with John Dempsey, executive group president of the Estee Lauder companies. For those of you who don't know who John is, he's someone that everyone in the beauty industry highly respects, building a career at the Estee Lauder companies for almost three decades. John was there right after the Estee Lauder companies acquired Mac, then a startup beauty brand out of Toronto, Canada, which has grown into the biggest prestige beauty brand in the world. This week on Inside Fashion, I talked to John about where the beauty industry is going, what he makes of influencers, his experience at BeautyCon, and also what it takes to be considered a top acquisition target for the Estee Lauder company. So here's John Dempsey, Inside Fashion and Beauty. So welcome, John Dempsey. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I just got off of my red-eye flight from New York to London. Beautiful late summer day. It Great is beautiful be here. here today, and we're really delighted to have you on our Inside Fashion podcast. But I must say, I think this is the first time we're talking to someone from the beauty industry. So maybe this is like the first episode of Inside Beauty. I don't know. I don't know. They're they're related after all. Absolutely. And you know, you have a long and illustrious career in the industry. And that's actually where I wanted to get started today is for those listeners who aren't familiar with you and your career, just to tell us a little bit about, you know, you're today, you're executive group president of Estee Lauder, which sounds like a very lofty title, but I know that you've really built a career from the very, very beginning. So absolutely. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about how you got into it? I'll go way back. Yeah. Born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My grandfather was in the yarn business and was the supplier of Rudy Gernwright. So growing up in Shaker Heights with my mother walking around in Rudy Gernwright hot pants and plaid jackets. And my grandfather's, excuse me, my grandmother's cousin was in the beauty business, actually a guy named Bernie Mitchell, who um, started Jovan Musk, which was the sort of the sex fragrance of the 70s. Right. So there's always this sort of aura or allure of um, beauty and fashion. My dad was in the steel business and my mom's a painter. Grew up in a prep environment, actually not that dissimilar then from over the lakes over in Canada where you grew up. Mm-hmm. And um, basically went to Stanford University, um, studied in Paris and got my master's in business at NYU but always knew that I wanted to be in the beauty slash fashion slash entertainment business. Didn't really know quite how I would go about it or to get there, but I was always um, focused on um, knowing that I wanted to be in the beauty business. But why beauty? It's really a strange thing. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with um, growing up as part of an aspirational community. Um, you know, Jewish immigrant 
great-grandparents and grandparents and the idea of beauty and aspiration and fashion. It's always been something that I um, have been attracted to. My mother claims that she used to push me around in a stroller, like when she was going to all the cosmetic departments. So it was at eye level from, 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 <laughs> the very, very, from very first sight. But I, I was very much interested in these incredible stories of these legends um and um you know having a minor legend in our in our family tree but really reading the story of elizabeth arden or helena rubinstein or estee lauder or max factor and these 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 people were bigger than life and i and the thing that always attracted me about the beauty business is that it's kind of a mashup between business creativity, being artistic, being part of pop culture, media, and, um, and consumer products. So it was something that I was always interested in, though I didn't quite know what I was interested in or how to get involved in it. I always like to say that um, I didn't get to where I got to with great successes on the first steps along the way. I, I always like to think that Actually, if I ended up with the educational career that I wanted, I may not have taken the harder steps in my career along the way. Mm -hmm. I was in a big hurry to go somewhere early on in. And actually, for the first 10 years of my professional life, I was the guy who never could hold a job. So really? I had five jobs in 10 years. And at that time, that was a lot. I mean, that that's not unusual today. No, not, but then, then now I've become the guy who had the job longer than anyone on, on, on earth. <laughs> so I, I began my career in the executive training program at uh, Macy's. Yeah. Rosemary Bravo gave me my first job. And um, I um, was told from the beginning by somebody who worked for Rosemary that I never was going to make it. I just didn't have what it takes to um, be entrepreneurial or to be a great retail beauty executive. Um, I didn't last there. I was there for a short time. I think my final assignment at Macy's, I was in the Sergio Valente jeans department in the Bronx, chaining up the jeans, listening to Flashdance on an eight track. Then I Irene Cara. Yes. Of course. What a, what a feeling. And, yeah. then, um, and then, um, <laughs> then I went to Bloomingdale's um, where I was an assistant buyer. And in those days, the buying offices used to also run the shop floor during the big early 80s mega Giorgio Beverly Hills, Dior, Poison, you name it. There was the major fragrance launch of the century every other month. And then I went to Saks Fifth Avenue where I was a fine fragrance buyer. And that's actually, I met the Lauder family actually when I was working at Bloomingdale's. I used to work on the, in the store on Sundays and Estee Lauder used to come in on Sundays with her assistant and they used to clear the counter out and she would start doing makeups and they would say, here she comes, there's Estee Lauder. And she was in her early eighties and I would come out and greet her and rustle up customers. And that's how I began to see the hustle and the, the passion and the drive um, all the way through to Estee Lauder's later years in life. From um, Saks Fifth Avenue, I went to uh, work for the Benetton family mm -hmm. on a failed beauty um, idea uh, of um, 
fragrances and a little color in Benetton franchise shops way ahead of the time. And then I ended up at Revlon working for Princess Marcella Borghese and running the sales um, function of the brand for, you know, two years. So, so you really did do the round. I did the rounds yeah. and I did, I did the, I did the, the heavy lifting, non-glamorous, unpacking the boxes in the stock room, scheduling the models. And those, it was, it was a non high tech era where stock ledgers and sawdust and pencils and erasers and adding machines with reams of paper. And, but I would not have changed one thing that I did in retrospect. Every job that I ever had gave me a front row seat on really understanding how things were built and where the action was. And when I originally started wanting to be in beauty, and I actually I'd applied to a lot of the big companies, um, I didn't get a job. And I was given the advice by a family friend in Cleveland who was a merchant for um, Higby's, which was one of the long forgotten specialty stores that every town had one. And he said, get a career in retail or get an exposure and you'll learn at the feet of all the others and to see how other people do things and launch things and such. So not getting the job that I wanted, not going to the business school I wanted to go to um, and not getting everything I wanted in the right way at the right time in the early stages is the best gift that life and God gave me. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say that now, right? Because you can like look back and as I think Steve Jobs was the one who said like, when you look back, you can easily connect the dots. But when you were going through all of that- It was and you, very hard. Yeah. It was very hard. And I um, I think a couple things. First of all, my mother did me the greatest favor of my lifetime. When I graduated from Stanford and I was gonna go back to Cleveland and she said to me, you're not coming back here. I said, what do you mean? She says, there's no place for you here. You're not going to be you unless you pursue your dreams and you need to go. And she literally pushed me out the door. Mm -hmm. And um, so I owe her a great gratitude for that because um, in close-knit families, people don't usually like not having their children around. Mm -hmm. Going to Stanford and having friends who you know, were going to work for McKinsey or Drexel Burnham or all the, you know, all the hedge funds or everybody was making all this money, um, living these very glamorous jobs. And it was the greed is good eighties. And everybody was like, you know, limo, limo, limoing around from club to club. And there I was, you know, schlepping boxes and, um, doing things that other people thought, why on earth are you doing this? And why didn't you take a different path? But it's something that I, I loved and, um, and it was hard and I, I had great bosses in the beginning and I had terrible bosses and, but I was super lucky to have had the opportunity to first meet Rosemary Bravo and Margaret Hayes and Marvin Traub. And these are people who really, you know, made a tremendous impact on me and, um, at a young age. So, First 10 years, lots of jobs, lots of things, always focused on wanting to be in prestige beauty. 
And um, it was in the early, like 1991, that I got a phone call from Robin Burns, who was running the Estee Lauder brand. Estee Lauder at that time was still a family-owned and run company. Private. Private, not public as of yet. And I was offered a job uh, to, actually it was less of a job than the job that I had, to move out to California and to run the West Coast office of the Estee Lauder brand. And um, I did it. I just said, this just sounds right. And I moved out to California, had my first trip with Leonard Lauder in in the summer of 1991 and um, I thought from that first trip that I wasn't going to have a job any longer and because um, Leonard was very um, very passionate and very um, very hard driving in terms of the things that he liked or didn't like and um, I learned that actually that meant that he liked me right. and that he felt comfortable enough to to be that way with me and to I challenge you and push and you. to cha- challenge me to push me. And I, and I've been with the Estee Lauder companies. I am going on 29 years and I have had the most unbelievable opportunities and career, um, being at the company. I began working in a sales or field marketing role, um, in North America on the Estee Lauder brand. The company went public in 1995. I was there. I knew Estee Lauder. I got to know everything from the ground up from when this was a small company and an entrepreneurial company. I was there for um, the scale up of our international business. I was the first executive that was put on our first acquisition um, when we acquired Mac Foley in 1998. I had the opportunity of going to work on Mac for 10 years. Um, and at the time when I took it, it was considered to be a huge risk. It was a small business that nobody understood. Yeah, let's talk about Mac because um, I think, you know, as someone growing up in Canada, um, that was a business that I saw from like early, up, yes. early stages, even though, um, you know, so my, my sister was like really into going to Mac and I had friends that worked at Mac. But the Mac business was really like one of the defining points of your career at Estee Lauder. Did, what was it like when you first came across that business? I didn't really know actually what I was getting myself in for. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually at the time, um, Leonard wanted me to take the job to run prescriptives. And I said to him, which was sort of like the, our, our, our trend brand as a company. And he was, they were very proud of it. It was always a challenge business. And, he said to me, I want you, what do you think about Mac? And I said, I'm in. I didn't even think about it. I just said, I'm in. And all I knew was um, all the women that I knew in New York were going to Bendel's or going down to Christopher Street to buy the product. It had incredible street cred with um, a lot of fashion designers and makeup artists. What set it apart at that stage? It wasn't the first makeup artist brand, but I think the late, Frank Angelo and Frank Toskin created something that was beyond just selling products. They created a movement and they created sort of a, a belief system. In those early years in Toronto, when the brand started, you know, Toronto was the gateway for immigration um, for North America because people couldn't get into the United States. So 
the tapestry of the population of Toronto is just unbelievably diverse and unique. And also, um, unbeknownst to me, um, very accepting of alternative lifestyles and um, very much in a sort of club world dynamic. So what set Mac apart um, was that they actually valued the uniqueness of each and every customer as an individual. They believed in inclusion and diversity unapologetically way before anybody ever talked I mean, about and it. And so this is so fascinating to me because obviously this is a topic that is everywhere right now and you have businesses all over the world in fashion and beyond that are trying to figure this out no, just, and mac mac was it was born, in the dna mac was born out of gender fluidity yeah. mac was born out of multicultural multiracial um androgyny lifestyle i mean all those things were part of what the brand was about and when frank toskin created those products um the products were professional grade makeup that were used by models, actors, and drag queens. And it was um, probably the decision of, um, everybody takes credit for it. I wasn't there to take credit for it, but it, it was um, it was the mashup between um, Donald Robertson, AKA the famous Donald Robertson, Robertson who was yeah. the first creative director of Mac back in the day who actually discovered RuPaul, who was working as the doorman in Christopher Street with Lady Bunny um, back in the 80s and discovered RuPaul as RuPaul at Wigstock. And they made the decision to make RuPaul the face of the brand in 1991. And they had some production problems on some lipsticks. And they said, you know what? We're going to not launch any products this year. We're just going to launch one product. We're going to call it Viva Glam or give all the money to AIDS. That was the first time that anyone took a transgender, transvestite, transpansexual anything to front a brand. That was the first time that anyone had done a 100% giving model, giving 100% of the proceeds of the selling price of those lipsticks, those Viva Glam lipsticks to HIV AIDS charities. And it was done with just the singular purpose of doing the right thing, mm -hmm. with no expectation for anything in return. So the brand was like the first brand with a purpose and a mission. And it had all these unique, incredible characteristics. And the people that worked at the brand in those early years really were professional makeup artists. They had no sales goals. And they were just there to give great makeup yeah. and show men and women how to make and use makeup to transform their lives, to project whomever they wanted to be at any time, anywhere. And it it probably, to this very day to me, I mean, it's, it's the thing I'm most proud of because, um, first of all, it could have all gone very wrong, actually, in retrospect. I mean, here I was, the guy wearing the navy blue suit. Yeah, I was gonna say you're this like Jewish guy from Ohio. Yes. Like, what what was your and like, I, and reaction people, and to people this were, And people were terrified. Well, I was a Jewish kid from Ohio, but I still listened to CKLW 
which was the Motown sound over Lake right. Erie, listening to the Detroit sound. And so, you know. Did you move to Toronto when you were? I to- moved to Toronto. Okay. I lived in Toronto for two years. I lived on Ave and Dave. I lived in um, Michael Budman's party house, which was Dan Aykroyd's house. Uh, I had this amazing, I had this amazing house. Um, and I used, I worked out of Carlton Street, which was the original hair salon where the Mac brand was created and went out to Markham to the factory and literally learned every single aspect. Wow. And this was, a, and this was a tiny business. How big was it back then when it got acquired by Estee When Lauder? we acquired um, it at 51%, it was $30 million. Um, today it's well over two and a half billion dollars. So it's, it is the largest, it is the largest prestige makeup brand in the world. And it transformed the way the cosmetics were sold. It was the first community brand before there were online communities. It was the first inside word of mouth influencer brand before there were influencers. And it was the birthplace of a lot of my competitors. Mm-hmm. So whether, you know, Jeffree Star or, you know, Jaclyn Hill or all these entrepreneurial phenomenons all somehow had Mac as part of their backstory. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, uh, I was in Los Angeles about 10 days ago and I walked into the Glossier store on Melrose Place. And I don't, I don't go into beauty stores all that often, but when I walked in there and I saw the energy in that store, it reminded me of those, early those days. days, early days at Mac and you'd walk in and there'd be all those makeup artists. I mean, their color is pink, but the Mac color was black and Absolutely. there was just so much that community feel that kind of energy. Well, I think the, it's the, the same kind of thing. Emily Weiss is, has a cult of personality and she has amazing personality muscle and um, the, the women who are obsessed with her content and her products believe in it as if it's a religion. And it's like, it's like, it's like a band coming to town. So it's, um, it's amazing. And it's amazing actually in today's world that it moves faster. So Mac was an overnight sensation but actually the brand is 35 years old. Yeah. When I got there, it was already 11 years old. So it, it, it seems like it was new, but actually not so new. Mm -hmm. And if you look at today, what's being born out of these sort of consumer direct digital native sort of beauty fashion plays, when something scales, it scales fast. So how does, how does a brand like Mac, which is no longer the upstart, which is now, as you say, the biggest prestige beauty brand in the whole world, how does Mac compete in this new context where you every day new beauty brands are being born? You know, celebrities are launching brands; they have millions of followers, and overnight they can create, you know, a Kylie Jenner style business doing hundreds of millions in revenue. Like, what's the role of Mac in this new context? Um, well, the role of Mac is to continue to be steadfast in terms of the original purpose of the brand. All ages, all races, all genders, um, and the art of makeup for personal 
self-transformation and that journey. And um, it stands for Makeup Art Cosmetics. And interestingly enough, and did it have an effect on us? It certainly did. Yeah. In certain markets, it had more of an effect in other markets. But um, people come back and there's something tried and true about the brand. And we are famous for our Studio Fix Foundation and our matte lipsticks and our eyeshadows and our professional brushes and products. And um, it's interesting because the, the growth of the brand has become increasingly more out of the emerging markets and the emerging world. Each country that we go into, a piece of that country and a piece of that culture comes into the DNA of what the brand is about. We have to be faster. We have to be on trend. We have to be on counter trend. And um, we have to be where the customer is. Mm -hmm. And whether that's on social or online or learning very fast on some of the other brands on TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, the media platforms change and the ways of communication change. Mm -hmm. But the aspiration of beauty never changes. My belief in the reason why beauty is more resilient than almost any other business in the world with the exception of food is that beauty is an aspiration that's universal. Mm -hmm. No one thinks they look good enough. No one thinks they look too young, um, too handsome, too pretty, and everybody's always open to hear how they could do even better. Right. And it's a universal, it's a universal aspiration. And um, as long as people want to project their best self or to feel good about that self that's being projected, there's always room for beauty. It's funny that you mentioned that because... Um... You know, on that same trip to LA, I, w I went to BeautyCon. I think I you were there. I, I think you there. were there yes. as well. Yes. I heard, and uh, Moj Madar is a, a good friend of mine, and she's been pushing me to come and kind of see BeautyCon in person because it's kind of this thing that you need to experience. But that desire, that aspiration, that you know, that power for beauty to offer transformation—it was so evident for me in looking at the people. Because it's basically a convention of influencers trying to be discovered. Influencers who have been discovered selling products. So, I mean, you walk in front, you're walking in front of the Staples centers and there are all these girls like with like 17 false eyelashes on with the phone, with taking with a selfie and with a, with a stick and with this and that. And you're just wondering like, you know, what's going on here? So I have a, a nearly 11-year-old daughter, and she was so excited. She was, like, hyperventilating. Did she come with you to she beauty? With, oh, of course, oh. I took her to BeautyCon. I okay. took her to see, and she got super excited, and there was this girl named Annie Rose who's 13 years old who's on a YouTube star, and she wanted to know her, and then she wanted to do a TikTok video with her, and it just, it just you know, and it just, it, it, it was just seeing all these people all going to beauty cons, like they were going to Woodstock. It blew me away. It's beauty Woodstock. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And I just, you know, and not being a beauty expert myself, I did wonder, you know, how 
how the physical experience of, you know, experiencing and learning about new beauty products and brands is still so, you know, in this digital world where everyone's talking about YouTube influencers and TikTok and, you know, Instagram. But you're still the, the yeah, physical, that physical experience. There's still, there's still the aha moment when you actually physically see yourself or experience the experiential, the experiential aspects of the product. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, um, and the thing that you also see at BeautyCon, it doesn't matter what size you are. Yeah, you that have, was incredible. You know, the, the diversity in terms of size of women. So in the fashion business, it's hard for a larger girl to be able to buy all these things or to be able to project what they would consider to be them, their, their best self. Yet in the beauty world, which is totally accepting of everyone, everybody sort of embraces it and goes for their their most projected self. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's fascinating. It really there is. was a real alignment too with those original values um, that you mentioned about, about Mac, you know, mm-hmm. all races, all genders, all sizes. What, what does a brand like Mac need to do to connect with that new young consumer that's learning about beauty from a 13 year old on YouTube? Like how are you guys involved in that space and in a place like BeautyCon? So we were not at BeautyCon for Mac this year. Two-Faced was. Um, Aveda was. So we did not have that many brands there. Um, I was looking at it because I was considering it. You need to meet the customer where they are. So I know in many respects, culturally, I'm aged out. So I still physically look for the magazine. I physically want to watch a TV show or a commercial, even though I'm down the rabbit hole on Instagram all the time. It's forced us to, um, to age down and to establish new voices and new experiences that um, are enabled by a phone or enabled by a digital journey Actually, in some respects, it's made it a lot easier mm-hmm. because everything that the brand has always been about, about community and about the mashup of different styles and different tastes and different aesthetics is very much of the moment. And at the same time, it's made it very hard because there are so many choices and so many different brands and so many different offers. And... Um, I think the thing that will keep Mac successful, which is sort of a core tenant of the Estee Lauder companies, is that the brands that make it for the long term, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, are brands that have um, unique DNA, an image that's aspirational, and amazing products that people come back and buy over and over and over and over and over again. Because the the true profitability in the beauty business is repeat. Yeah. The true cost in the beauty business is trial. And there is this tension between, especially in the age of influencers and social media, of constantly being offered or shown something to try that you're sort of attracted to 
And then there's a point that so much is being thrown at you that you almost like having too much food to eat on the table. You almost want to simplify and go back to the things that you, that care the values and care the, the product quality and the, um, service that, that gives you longevity. So is that another way of saying that a lot of the, or some of the new brands that are launching with great fanfare, they're not the kinds of brands that are going to create that kind of repeat business and a, you know, 30, 40, 60 year yeah. lifetime. Sadly, yes. So how do you, you know, as a, as a, a beauty expert and someone who's been in the, you know, the business for many decades, you know, I'm sure Estee Lauder as a group is also thinking, well, what's the next Mac? You know, what are the, what are the brands that you're trying to build relationships with now who do have that long-term potential? We've made nine acquisitions over the past 10 years. So we, um, and I'm involved in all of our acquisitions. Actually, I, I was on the ground day one developing Tom Ford as well. So we develop and build and acquire brands that are focused on the prestige beauty customer. So we, we are the world's largest pure play in prestige. And what, what, what do I mean by that? Other beauty companies sell in Walmart or sell in the mass market or other conglomerates have fashion enterprises or different types of businesses. All we do is sell premium priced beauty products. And we want to be um, on that vanity table or in that medicine cabinet or on that shelf so that the average woman uses 12 to 15 products that we have the greatest share of those products on the shelf. And um, we acquire and build brands um, to get the most that we can out of them. At the same time, we compete against ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when you come across something that has staying power? Like what are the things that you look for in those nine acquisitions? There must be some kind of criteria or or list of things that you look for. There needs to be first a compelling backstory. So a once upon a time, every great beauty brand comes from the source of a person, an ingredient, a place, a provenance of something that makes it unique and special. So whether that was, um, Mac was backstage artistry, um, Smashbox was Smashbox Studios, Davis Factor, great-grandson, Max Factor. Two-Faced, Jared and Jeremy were Estee Lauder counter managers who worked for me back in the day in Orange County who actually were discovered 16 years after being in business on social media because they could tell their story correctly. Um, Lolabo came from a unique, almost anti-fashion, anti-retail approach of sort of a slow, slow, carefully curated experience. Um, Tom Ford emanates from full out aspirational glamour 
And he's from, Tom Ford. And he's Tom Ford. <laughs> and, it, and it really is, you know, it, it, it's, um, and it's interesting when looking at what's successful for us right now. We just had our earnings call. I saw. And um, it's very interesting to see in our unprecedented results what the drivers of that were. The biggest driver was the Estee Lauder brand. Skincare, especially. Skincare. Yeah. Um, so the Estee Lauder brand and the incredible, it's, it's not emerging any longer, emerged Chinese consumer and her aspirational um, desire to continue to trade up and to have the best beauty products and experiences. We had phenomenal success um, basically in almost in 80% of our brands. And um, Tom Ford has gotten big. Tom Ford actually was the first designer brand born in the 21st century. And um, as a fashion line and as a beauty line. And it's super interesting to see now that we play in skincare, makeup, fragrance, men's and women's. And um, how did we get there? He has ambition and he is unapologetic about his ambition and his quest for perfection. And um, it's touched a nerve. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting when we developed the Tom Ford business originally in fragrance, the fragrance business had gone in a very bad place in the world. It had gone very down market, very discount, very value set oriented, and a lot of sort of homogenization in terms of product offerings and um, pretty mass market. When we did the Tom Ford brand, we developed private blend. And the idea of it was that we were going to develop the most luxurious and distinctive fragrances with no filter and no market research and no cost parameters. And we also developed a commercial offering as well, which was Black Orchid, which still to this very day is very successful. But the thing that was happily surprising to me was that the part that we took the greatest risk on, where we actually didn't try to second guess the customer and actually to give somebody something that they haven't expected before, or they haven't seen before. We got credit for that. What was that? That was our fragrances. Right. That was private blend. And people mix them and stuff. They mix them. It's a it's a it's it's an amazing um, alchemy of of of, of different mm-hmm. of different fragrances. Mm-hmm. But it but it is um has been phenomenally successful. And yeah. actually when we began the business, um, we had a tiny little counter at Selfridges. And actually it was Selfridges who said that they wanted to see us in makeup. And um, we started off with 12 lipsticks. So um, the story is, um, it sounds oh so very easy right now. Um, It was not, Um, it's still not, Mm -hmm. but it is, um, it's doing spectacularly well. So those were the strong points. It was Asia, it was skincare, it was brands like Tom Ford, but the North American business is a soft spot. It's a soft spot. 
what you know what's going on there and why why is the 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 Estee Lauder business not growing there like it is in these other markets well the Estee Lauder business is better than the market so you have to take it in the context of the US marketplace you have had a dramatic consolidation of retailers most of the mid-tier department stores have gone out of business it's actually you have a similar de-evolution of what's taking place in the UK right now with Debenhams and the House of Fraser. So there's yeah. a there's a reassortment of the deck chairs and the digital platforms have had an impact on the overall business. I believe that Amazon and we we're not we do not sell Amazon, but I do believe that Amazon has fundamentally disrupted the apparel cycle and is affecting a lot of the stores that we do business with. I believe that um, the huge sort of binge behavior on the Gen Z selfie obsessed point and click to buy has had a little bit of a normalization. So what do I mean by that? That you, There was so much consumption taking place by young girls literally consuming how-to videos on YouTube and watching Bravo and the E! Channel while all the various celebrity families and influencers mm -hmm. that they actually wanted to be them. And they would, they were basically, it was almost like binging on makeup products. And I think that there was a little bit of a tipping point that um, there's always tension in the world between the minimalist and the maximalist. We were in sort of a maximalist makeup period. And what you just described about Glossier is the minimalist. Yeah. And the world swings between too much and too little. And... Um, and that's how we make a living. So, <laughs> so as you look to the future, John, um, you know, I kind of find it astounding some of the valuations being ascribed to some of these new age beauty yes. brands. And, you know, they all have investors and are looking for an exit someday. But do you have a, you know, with your vantage point and your experience, do you have a, a view on where this industry is going like will companies like glossier and huda beauty and anastasia and all these like billion dollar brands will they go public will they be acquired by big conglomerates like estee lauder or lvmh or are they or are they too big and too expensive now for that to happen gosh probably all the above so i'll unpack it yeah for starters um the valuations have gotten crazy. And um, I believe that ultimately, if you want to be successful as a global company, most of these brands can do a country or a region super well, but it's super hard to be a multinational. And that's why strategic companies like the Estee Lauder companies are so important in terms of the next wave of development of how these brands actually get access to new customers new markets and manufacturing capabilities. People held on maybe a little long or played a little hard to get, expecting incredibly high valuations. 
And the market has had a little bit of a stabilization right now or a little bit of a rationalization. So a lot of things came to market and they came off the market and they have um, VC firms and other, you know, other people invested in the businesses and they're waiting. But everybody's expectation ultimately is, or most people's expectation is um, how are they going to maximize their personal fortune and valuation. And then for those people who care deeply about what it is that they're doing, how will they ensure that their baby actually gets to live on past the entrepreneurial phase? So it's a, it's a very heated marketplace. Um, and at the same time, there are a lot of strong winners and a lot of weakness in terms of people not doing so well. So you have um, some of our competitors saddled with a lot of debt and a lot of, you know, things that have to be rationalized. Um, you have a lot of um, companies that were in the makeup business in the mass market that are super challenged by all these consumer direct, you know, alternatives. And, um, you have the advent of clean beauty now and formulated without and then CBD oils. And so, 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 so the, 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 the wellness industry, the wellness, the wellness right? industry and procedures and dermatologists and plastic surgeons and vampire facials and blood, blood recycling. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But, but, but it, it still comes back to the basics. You need to have a unique selling proposition. There needs to be an authentic story and there needs to be a real product with a real loyal following and repeat. And if you don't have those things, you can be a fad or you can be a trend, but you can't be a global business. And, you know, that's, that's where we come in. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating tour through your career. But also, as always, you know, whenever I sit down with John, last time we sat down, you gave me all of your tips on where to look for beauty innovation. So that'll yes. have to be a, a yes. topic of another podcast. Yes. But um, thank you so much for stopping in at BOFHQ and sharing your insights. It was really, really interesting. Thank you. It's an amazing business. And I've been very fortunate to be able to work in it. That's all for this week on Inside Fashion and Beauty. Uh, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. We hope you'll tune in next week. Please leave us a review. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to get our weekly look into the fascinating world of fashion, beauty, and luxury. That's all for this week. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. 
For a limited time only, we are offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF professional membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special code PODCAST2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did, and don't forget to share it with your friends. 